Jude 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, you should be able to say this with me, and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's a key verse, verse 3. For why? Certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives examples. We have three examples and then three, six illustrations in groups of three. So in verses 5 through 7, Three examples. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved, first example, the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Second example, the angels. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Third example, Jude chapter 7, uh, verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah. So these were the cities. So you have the people, the angels, the cities as examples of God's judgment. Around them in similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality, gone after strong, strange flesh, and set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, we have three other examples in Jude 8. Look, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel is in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a real, him, against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil, same thing he mentioned in verse 8, of whatever they do not know, and whatever they, they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Jude, now verse 11, three things. Woe to them, for they have, one, gone in the way of Cain. Secondly, have run greedily in the error of Balaam. And third, and, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, three illustrations. Jude, chapter, verse 12. These are spots in, the love, in your love feast while they feast with you, with you without fear. So they're spots without fear serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. So this is what they're without. Verse 13, again, three illustrations. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So Jude it's not a very light subject he's dealing with here. So, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would bless your word to our hearts. And some of these topics aren't fun, but, Lord, they are a part of your word. They're the warnings that we need if we're going to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so, Father, I pray your blessing over the things I prepared. Break them fresh. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church we are, as the believers, Jude writing to the church, the believers. But, Lord, we also pray and intercede for anyone that might be here today that doesn't know you. Because, God, we know your heart was broken over our sin. Your heart was broken on the cross. Your heart is broken for those who are out. They don't have that relationship with you that you desire for them. 
You created them to know you. You created them to walk with you. You created them to know how, you, how much they're loved by you, that you, Lord, have a plan and purpose for their lives. You want to fill them with that meaning and satisfaction that comes by, only by knowing you. So we're praying. We know we're in a battle, Lord. We're praying for the soul or souls of anyone here that doesn't yet know you, that today would be the day you move in their hearts, bringing them to a point of repentance, confession, faith in Jesus Christ, and thus born again by the Spirit of God, saved from all sin for all eternity. And that's our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You can be seated. And so I wanted to also point out, and I'll be quoting a little bit from 2 Peter, but 2 Peter, especially chapter 2, is a companion chap- chapter to the book of Jude. So if you read 2 Peter 2, you're going to have the same kinds of things that Peter is talking about in his book. So he said, I found it necessary to write to you, verse 3, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So what does it mean to contend? A little review from last week. Contend means to stir up, metal, strive, to excite oneself against, so there's passion to it, to engage in strife, to strive in opposition to someone or something. In other words, we're in a spiritual wrestling match, and it's up close and personal. Someone told me last week they love the word wrestling because it, I used to be a wrestler, and, some, and this person also. We, we wrestle, it's personal. It's up close and personal, this match that we're in. We wrestle, Ephesians, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So how are we to contend earnestly for the faith? We looked last week at we contend humbly. In other words, it has to start in our own hearts. We have to be contending for these things in our own hearts, in our own lifestyles, in all the things that we're allowing or not allowing in contending to keep the faith, to contend for those things that were once for all delivered. So God called us to save us. He saved us to change us. And he changes us by keeping us, but listen, as we contend. In other words, we can't be living a lifestyle that's not contending for the truth. And expect God to keep us in that. He wants to deliver us from that as believers. So we contend. God changed us by keeping us as we contend. So in this battle, in this transformation that's taking place, we are, in a sense, in partnership with God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So we have to be submitted, uh, surrendered to Christ, willing to be obedient. And as we're willing to be obedient, God backs that up with the power of his spirit. God will never command us, but what he also enables us. So we've been given as believers the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to yield to the Holy Spirit. We're able to be led by the Holy Spirit. And as we obey, God backs that up with the power of the Spirit. And as we obey, God also then, we bear fruit of the Spirit. It's amazing. And God rewards us for everything that he did. Now, that's a good deal as far as I'm concerned. So we're contending. We must contend from our own heart. We contend humbly. And again, am I living a surrendered life to Jesus Christ? These are daily questions because we wake up every morning and God's mercies are new. God's power is the same. His person is the same. He is with us and he's seeking to lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's seeking to lead us in triumph in living out our faith, what we believe, and then living out in how we obey him. So God will, we are, am I living a, a, a surrendered and sanctified life? Am I living an honest and repentant life? 
Am I living a humble life? Am I living a holy life? Am I living a life that's filled with his spirit and faithful in the things that he's called me to do? I'm not saying perfect. I'm saying faithful. Because we have to keep coming back to the things that we've been called to do. And as we do, God grows us up. God grows us up. Again, the parenting picture is fantastic. You, know, you have kids and you understand we want them to grow up. Are they, are they doing what they should be doing? No, but we're there to help them to get to that place because we know as believers particularly, we know the trajectory of someone's will is going to be what happens later on in the world. So we want to bring that, that, that young child, we want his heart to be after the Lord and the things of God. And that, may I say to you, as a parent of six kids, is a challenge. But it has always been a challenge. Always. There's nothing new in the world. There's nothing different. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Our hearts, because sin has ruined it, that began. So, you know, I'm having so many problems with my children. Well, you know why? They're little sinners. <laughs> my child's a sinner. Your child's a sinner. <laughs> Charlotte always helps me out with that. Why? why what's going on? They're sinners. The natural direction of the sinful heart is in sinning. So we aren't sinners because we sin. It's because we're sinners that we sin. So anyway, I'll not go all the way there. So now listen, these are certain men, he tells us. They're specific men. There are men who were set on destroying the faith of many. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked, verse 4, for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There are specific men, and they need to be noticed. They need to be understood for what they are. There are men who are set on destroying the faith of many. They're enemies of the faith. They secretly slipped in. Listen, they secretly slipped in the front door. The front door. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, spreaders of poison, robbing thieves, they're tares among wheat, bad fish among good fish, goats among sheep. False teachers. They are, certain, they are creepy men is what I like. They creep in. They creep in unnoticed. In other words, they join to the assembly under the guise of being a believer. That's what happens. They are strategically placed there by the devil himself. That's what happens. Now, this might sound a little mean. Listen, it's important to understand the enemy. Behind these things is the enemy of our soul. And he's got his own apostles. He's got his own doctrine. He's got all these things, and he wants to bring it in, not so much overtly from the outside, but inside. And begin to undermine God's word. Begin to undermine God's authority. So they're strategically placed there by the devil himself. And not an attack from without, but from within the church. Now, last week we looked at these. I want to look at them again just briefly. For I know this, Paul, to the Ephesian elders, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, notice, among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Next one. Again, 2 Peter, companion. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Again, among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. No, they're not going to get away with it, <laughs> is what God's saying. And many will follow the destructive ways because whom the way of truth will, will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction, do we have the rest of that? <clears throat> does not slumber. In other words, they are condemned men. Written about long ago. Read the scriptures, the Old Testament, filled with God warning about false prophets and false teachers. In fact, even his own men, the own, even those over Israel, he had to rebuke them because they were not shepherding to feed the flock, but to fleece God's flock. They were in it for themselves, and God called them out. Because God loves his people, and God so loved the world, God is seeking to draw men, people to himself to have relationship, and the devil does not want that. So God marks false teachers and prophets for judgment. He always has, and he always will. God marks them false, perverse, truth blasphemers, secretive and savage, deceptive and destructive. He marks them for sure judgment. Now, again, that might sound mean. It's not. It's the truth. Here's what's going on. We are in a spiritual battle. Now, a few weeks ago, there was someone coming. He came four weeks in a row. He came up to me. He was talking about some things that he had heard, and he heard from an angel and all these things. And I said, is that in the word of God? First week. Well, No said, well, then I'm not interested. Came back a second week, a third week, a fourth week. I said, I'm not interested. If it's contrary to the word of God, I'm not interested. And we need to stand strong as soldiers with the sword of the Spirit, understanding, does, did God say that? God didn't say that. I don't care if, if you think Gabriel talked to you. Did God say that? You see, and that's what we need to be doing because we have a vicious, savage adversary who is set on our destruction. They're ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. That's what he says. They pervert God's grace. Wow. Giving license for lewdness. License to live however they wanted, because after all, God's grace will cover my sin. Teaching that a person can sin with impunity. Live a lifestyle of sin and get away with it in that sense. That it's okay. God's grace will cover. In Revelation chapter 2, this won't be up there. The corrupt church of, Thy of Thyatira. Jesus said to them, I have this against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual morality and to sacrifice things to idols. The, the church of Thyatira was allowing this false teaching that sexual morality is okay. Changing who God is is okay. Sacrificing to idols. And Jesus rebuked them. And he said, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality, but she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into um, great tribulation now listen, unless they repent of their sin. 
So you see, even though Jezebel was already going to be judged, Jesus is saying to the church, you also need to understand the need to repent, to get it right with God. Now listen, perversion in doctrine will always supervise the perversion of practice. Perversion in doctrine will happily supervise perversion in practice. Let's put it the other way. Perverse practice will wholeheartedly embrace the perverting of doctrine. That's what happens. So one attends the other. One oversees the other. One, if I can say the word, disciples the other. So false doctrine is going to be leading to perverse practice. But when I'm perverting my practice, I want something to support me doctrinally, so I'm happy to embrace false doctrine so I can do what I want to do. Now, at this time, there was a heretical teaching known as Gnosticism. They believed that God, who was good, could have absolutely no contact with anything physical, which was evil. So some Gnostics taught that Jesus was God, but only appeared to be human, flesh and blood. Others said he was only a man and not God. Those are contrary to the scriptures. There was a small segment of Gnosticism, this heresy that taught sinless perfection. That the evil flesh could be overcome to the point where you would never sin. Now have any of you found that to be true? Because it's not scriptural. It's not doctrinal. Now, most of them taught this thing called antinomianism, which means no laws or rules. So the teaching went like this. The physical body was the work of Satan and would not survive death. Therefore, they concluded it was all right to indulge their physical bodies and appetites in any kind of sin they desired. So they claimed salvation while living lifestyles of sinning against God. It doesn't matter what you do with your body so long as your spirit is right. You can indulge your body appetites because it's no good anyway. The more you sin, the greater proof of God's grace. Let me state it very simply. If it does not matter how we live, then why did Jesus have to die? If sin doesn't really matter, why did Jesus have to suffer on a cross for you and for me? You see, Jesus died because it does matter, and it should make a difference. Now, many want to deny these truths, And I get it. I would like to deny them sometimes so I can do what I want. But the fact is that the light of conscience and the light of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shines on the darkness. It shines on sin and the seriousness of it. Listen, it matters to God. A loving God. John chapter 3, many of you know it well. This is the condemnation. 
that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than lights because why? Their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now, I just thought of another scripture that Jesus said, John 15. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. So he talks about his words. Then he said, if I had not kind of done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have hated both me and my father. But this is what was written in the law. They hated me without a cause. Now, as they look at Jesus' life, it's the perfect sinless life. They see, they hear what he's doing. It was this light. And that is what exposed them for who they really are, sinners. Another scripture, Romans chapter 3. If our, righteousness dem- if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? Is sin to be judged? Absolutely. Unrighteous? Absolutely. For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? I'll tell you why you are, because you are. <laughs> and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? We are crazily good at somehow justifying sinning. And here it's God that's, that's the one that's being put on the trial. And while, as we are slandered, so they're saying this is what Paul's writing. That's not what Paul was writing. That's not what you'll find in, in the, the apostles' doctrine. As we are slandered, and some affirm, they say, no, notice, their condemnation is just. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly, which really means perish the thought. Forget that. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, there are a lot of things we could go off. And I, I hope that at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you will take the book of Romans and study it. Because that's God's manual for how has my relationship with the world changed? How has my relationship with sin changed? How has my relationship with the law changed now because of Jesus Christ? And now I have this different whole relationship with, this, with the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has overcome these things. Uh, Again, I better stop there. Okay. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So we can't use grace as a means of sinning. He said, what? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live how? Soberly, righteously, and there it is, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, what? From every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, Titus, exhort with, and rebuke with all authority. This is what God says, and you can speak it. It's authoritative. This is what happened. This is what God intends. This is what happens when we get saved. And he says, let no one despise you. And there are a lot of people that have despised that very thing. The, these are ungodly men who not only turn the grace of God into lewdness, but again, they deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's happening. In other words, denying the absolute lordship of God and the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord, can you say amen? He is Lord. Complete authority. He's the one that we will all answer to. He's the one that we are taking the commands from. He's the one that our lives are surrendered to. Lord, what would you have? So Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, 46. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Good question. I don't like that question sometimes. How about you? 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and say, well, I'm just going to go off and I'm going to be the Lord? Another verse, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit, enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. Now, here's the deal. You who practice lawlessness. It's a lifestyle of lawlessness. So listen, we must, we must, must, must contend earnestly for this faith. Now, how do we do that? There are three things I'm going to talk about now to close out our time this morning. Contenders, first of all, remember God's judgment. Don't deny it. Don't deny it. Earnestly remember God's judgment. Secondly, reverence God's authority. Don't defy it. Maybe I should say, don't defy him. Earnestly reverence God's authority. Don't defy him. Third, refuse willful disobedience. Don't do it. Don't do it. So earnest, remember God's judgment. Don't deny it. All false teachers, ungodliness, and unrepentant lifestyles will face the judgment of God. So the first example is the people. It says, verse 5, I want to remind you, remember, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And many of us know the story. God brought them out of Egypt, but not, every, not all of them made it into the promised land, which was an 11-day journey that wound up taking 40 years because of judgment. Because of judgment. So unbelief is at the root of all ungodliness. It's not believing God and obeying what he said by, by obeying. So in Numbers chapter 11, there's so many traits that come out of a heart that's not believing or not willing to obey God. Let me just give you a few of them. Yield to intense craving. Putting God to the test. Seeing if it, not heeding the voice of God. Rejecting God. This is all things in numbers that were going, what was going on. They complaining against God. All come from a heart of unbelief. In not believing God by obeying God. Trusting God. They did not heed the voice. Now look, look at Psalm 106. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them where? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a commentary for our benefit and our warning. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that this word all comes up. All our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and drank, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is the wilderness. He goes on. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered where? In the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not Again, example, we should not, what, lust after evil things as they also lusted. 
And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He goes on. Nor let us commit sexual sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Judgment comes over this case over time. 40 years because of their unbelief when the 12 spies went into the promised land and 10 came back with a bad report. They said, we're not going to obey God. And Joshua and Caleb say, no, no, we can get there. We heard this yesterday in the men's. We can, God said it. Let's just go for it. No. And so for 40 years, until that generation had perished in the wilderness, the judgment was, came over, over a course of time. Um, let us tempt Christ. Some of those also tempted. We destroyed by serpents. Nor complain. That complaining comes up a lot. Now, I think because it comes up a lot for us. <laughs> Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Hebrews chapter 3, again, another passage that's giving us commentary. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of, there's that word again, all who came out of, the, out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who, what, did not obey? Now notice, so we see they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. Not believing God by obeying God. That's the two go hand in hand. The second example he gives now in Jude verse 6 are the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these angels, there's there's going to come a specific time when God's going to judge them. Why? Because of their rebellion. Rebelling against the authority of God. So something terrible happened. Now we're getting into a lot of things that we could spend weeks studying. But something terrible happened in God's perfect universe. A great disruption of God's perfect order and authority. Satan led a rebellion. I believe one third of the angels, the angelic beings, went and joined the rebellion against God. Revelation chapter 12 Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery dragon, Satan. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. I believe that's, that's talking about what happened sometime. Isaiah chapter 14. I won't go there. Well, we can, okay. I'm just trying to keep track of our time here. Isaiah 14. Now, here's how I remember this. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. So Isaiah 14 times 2 is Ezekiel 28. And these both speak about what happened. Something happened with Lucifer or Isaiah. How you are fallen from him. Oh, Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer is the light. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Yet you shall be brought low down to Sheol to the lowest Depths of the pit. Ezekiel 28. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. God put him there. And I believe he was the worship leader in heaven before this happened. The trading that talks about in Ezekiel was him trading what the, the, that he was to be glorifying God. He's the worship leader. He started taking some, started trading. I. And so in Ezekiel 28, you, I asked, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones there before the throne of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Something happened of rebellion in God's perfect ordered universe. So Jude tells us some of those angels who rebelled, who kept not within the bounds of the authority that God gave them, 
are bound waiting God's judgment. A specific time is coming. Second Peter says this, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, all these demonic realms are under God's, are bound by God. Job is a good picture of that. In other words, they can't do anything but that God allows. God's still on the throne. Can I say it here? God's still the authority. But God allows them, allow this thing for his own purposes. One day, these demonic forces will be permanently judged and removed. Can I say amen? That's what's going to happen because God is in control. Now, I believe that we are being equipped and trained because God's allowing us in this experience to understand we are in a battle for the glory of God. Jude 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah. So the cities did not restrain themselves, and they suffered vengeance. In other words, it came suddenly, but not without warning. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities that are around them in similar manner as these, having given themselves over to sexual morality, that's at least part of the problem. Some will say, well, no, that's not why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you should go to our studies in Genesis. We talked about this. We also had a seminar a couple years ago that was fantastic in addressing this. In 2020, we're going to be having another gathering this year. What is it called? Hope. And, and we're, going to, we're just going to be uh, addressing these issues that are in our culture in the, in the area of reaching those who are, who are, are I believe, uh, trapped in these perverse things of sin. So we're going to be doing that. And uh, uh, just be praying for that. What, when is that? June. Is that right? Yeah, in June. What's the name of the ministry? Yeah. Okay. All right, so remember God's judgment. <laughs> Don't deny it. Don't deny it. It's not a bad thing. It's the right thing. Secondly, reverence God's authority. Don't defy God. Verse 8, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. There are the three things. They're spiritual dreamers. They're not living in the reality of God's authority. In fact, I call them spiritual daredevils. They're going to put their, you're going to thumb their nose at God. Let me tell you, that's never a good thing to do. Defile the flesh. They pollute their own bodies, licensed to freely engage themselves in base immorality. They reject authority. They rely on and they actually relish lawlessness. I want to do what I want to do. They speak evil of dignitaries. They speak evil of whatever they do not know. In other words, these three examples, they say what they want to say to undermine the authority of God. And the other thing that happens is they make it up as they go along. They speak of that they don't know. So as they go along, well, that doesn't really fit what I want to do, so we're going to make something up here. And that's what you find in false doctrine. They're making up things as they go along. They say what they want to say so they can do what they want to do, and they'll gladly take your support of their doctrines. They corrupt themselves, says, like brute beasts. Now, 2 Peter 2.12 says, we don't have this one, like Peter saying, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. That's what Peter says. So they're living 
like animals. Defiling the flesh, rejecting authority. They reject all authority, seen and unseen. They arrogantly shake their fists and dare the powers of heaven to rule over them. Now, this might seem like, whoa, that's what it is. It's whoa. It's an authority issue. Now, Ernest Hemingway, I like it. His first name is Ernest. We're talking about contending earnestly. Here's Ernest. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway wrote a poem called Invictus. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a few of the lines in that say this. I don't have this for up there. It matters not how straight the gate. It matters not. How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We are not the captains of our soul. It matters how charged the punishments in the Bible say. It matters how straight the gate is. Jesus said, enter by the straight gate, the narrow gate, because wide is this path that leads to destruction. So the whole thing is there, reverence God's authority, reverence what he's saying to us about how we live. Michael the archangel is one of three archangels in the Bible. The other two are Gabriel and Lucifer. But it's interesting here, Michael the archangel respected the God-given position of Lucifer even after he fell. Reverence the authority of God. Now, I have a couple other things, but if you want my notes to talk about the couple where the, he's drawing these from, Paul will be speaking next week from a, a, a lot of these Assumption of Moses, the book of Enoch, which are found in the Apocrypha. But let me go on to the third thought. Refuse willful disobedience. Don't do it. Don't do it. The devil is a persistent adversary. He will poke and prod and tempt you He knows the weaknesses of our flesh. He's going to poke and prod. He's going to try to tempt us to willfully disobey God. And he is persistent. Now, I say willfully because we all know the weakness of our flesh from personal, sometimes debilitating experience. Paul knew the same thing. He said, what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not do. In fact, what I hate, that I practice. So there is a battle going on, and we understand that, that the flesh is weak. The spirit is what we need. And so we all have these battles that we place. But we also know the power of sin when it masters us. How does sin master us? Willful disobedience. In other words, disobedience is determined Willful disobedience is a determined pushing ahead in sin in spite of God's clear instructions, God's loving admonitions, and God's warnings to stop. I have found that God is faithful to warn me in my path of sinfulness. So I push past that to continue to do what I want to do. And it, begins, it can begin to master me where I'm in bondage to the very sin that God was warning me about, admonitioning me about, saying, no, here's the instruction. This is what's going to happen. Is not the Bible very clear about what happens when we sin? If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap what? Corruption. You sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. So he gives three examples. I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail on these. I'll just give them to you. You can meditate on them. 
for time's sake. But it's interesting to me that all three of these examples that he's giving are dealing with the invisible attitude of the heart. Anger. Greed. Envy. What was going on was invisible to the naked eye. What was going on in the, in the life of Cain, he was angry and it began to surface. That's what happens. To where he hated Abel. And that led to him sitting down with Abel. Hey, bro, how's it going? <laughs> Killing him. And God says, where, Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Why are you angry? And what God said to Cain was, you need to master that. It's at your door. So God is instructing him, giving him warning, saying, you need to take and look at what's at your door, what's ready to come into your heart, and don't go there. Don't stop. He didn't. And it mastered him. His anger led to murder, as Jesus said it would. And then you have this second example is the era of Balaam. What was, what was Balaam's problem? He was greedy. And so he has this opportunity to actually benefit in the way that he wants to benefit. Now, it's interesting that ba Balaam was an internationally known prophet or diviner. They've come up with these, they've discovered these things, that there has been, these, there are these prophetic texts of Balaam from the 6th century that show he was, how very famous he was in the Near East. Now, you read the book of the, the story of Balaam, and it's weird. <laughs> Here's this prophet, and Balak the king comes and says, first of all, Balak the king is scared, is scared out of his shorts. Because here the children of Israel come, and what they've been doing in taking over the land scares this king Balak to death. He's saying, hey, i got to somehow get these guys cursed. So he says, he sends to get Balaam, who's well known. He says, hey, come and curse the children of Israel. Balaam says, hold on a second, let me go see what God says. And God says to him, basically, don't go. So they don't. They come back and go back to King Balak. And Balak says, okay, let's send a more influential entourage. Let's make the deal better. Let's, let's make it more attractive for Balaam. So here they come back to Balaam. And they say, well, hold on a second. God told him, but let me go see if there's more that God wants to tell me. Listen, when God's very simple about it, we don't need more, okay? The only reason we want more is because we're hoping maybe there's an open, I can go do something that I want to do. So God says, okay, you're to go with him, but you're only going to say what I say. And so then it says that God was angry at Balaam for even going. He's pushing against the will of God, pushing against the will of God. So Balaam, we don't know if he was a godly man who started out right and went wrong or if he was an ungodly man who started out wrong and wound up worse. We don't know that. But either way, he's pushing against the clear communication he had from God. And so as he's opposing the will of God, as he's go, God says, okay, you can go, but I won't say what I'm going to say. And it got to the point where he was so spiritually blinded, the donkey was more spiritually discerning than he was. Look what 2 Peter says, 2 Peter 2.15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. You know, to me, it's not so miraculous that a donkey spoke. The miraculous thing to me is that Balaam engaged in conversation with a donkey, where you can have a conversation with God. What do you want, a donkey or God? The third example is the rebellion of Korah. 
he became mastered by envy. So we need to be guarding ourselves and not pushing against what we know God has said. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Just keep it simple. What has God said? It's not complicated. In fact, my wife Charlotte often says, it's not the things I don't understand in the Bible that bother me. It's the things I do understand. All these, we can try and unwind the prophetic pictures and all those kind of things. But what has God sowed to us? Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so what does he say? Paul, maybe you'll overlap this next week. We'll talk. But he says three illustrations. Spots in your love feasts without fear. Notice there's no humility. There are clouds without water. There's no refreshment for the thirsty soul in this. It's empty. There are trees without fruit. No fruit. And listen, now or ever. That's, that's the kind of heretical, that's what heretical doctrine leaves you with. No fruit now or ever. Twice pulled up, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. In other words, there's no fruit now, uprooted, there'll never be fruit. Verse 13, raging waves of the sea. In other words, it should be scary. It should alarm us. They are foaming up. They are shameful. Listen, it should appall us, these kinds of things. And finally, wandering stars, they are condemned. Listen, Paul, you'll pick this up next week. These things should alert us. We need to contend earnestly for the faith which responds for all delivered to the saints. Would you say amen to that? God, we thank you again. And Lord, I have been challenged just even trying to somehow pull out some things that we can think about. But the bottom line, Lord, is we need to contend earnestly. Remembering your judgment, reverence your authority, and refusing to continue to push back against what we know is your will. So, Lord, we humble ourselves here as we close in song this morning. We humble ourselves before you. Lord, test us, try us, see if there's any wicked way in us, and lead us in the way of everlasting. Please. We do not want to be deceived. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, says the Lord. Who can know it? But I, the Lord, test the hearts. I try the minds. So, Lord, test us. Try us. Take us, Lord, please, as we are, we know you do, in our humbleness, in our brokenness, in our questions, in our battles. We trust, Lord, that you have a work you're wanting to accomplish and that you are able to do that, able to do it exceedingly abundantly of all that we ask or think according to your power working in our lives.